Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Welcome to the Devil's Anus. Wait, what? I mean, Salwete. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Back with the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 149 for my birthday month, November MMXVII. Back with the Oracle is brought to you by Give Me Those Star Wars. Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't let them in. Star Wars, those dear Star Wars, talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast! Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... that's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? 
I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Batgirl Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU as well as BTO and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to the thebatmanuniverse.net. Hello and welcome. You know, when you ask fans a question on the Twitter, they come back and they respond. So I was sick. I got sick, felt it in my throat starting sort of late Wednesday, then Thursday. And Friday was pretty rough. Saturday, Sunday, I didn't even go to church on Sunday. And then Monday, I had parent-teacher conferences for seven hours straight. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be horrible. But over the weekend, I think I asked people on Twitter, you know, should I record now with maybe a wonky voice or wait till I'm better? And I'm not sure what the exact percentage of this was. Let me check this real quick. Ah, uh, 12 people voted. 75% said later with a normal voice. 25% said now and I have a cold. I think uh, some people may not remember what I sound like when I have a cold. You could potentially look at some of the Batman Universe archives and listen to see what I sound like. Occasionally, I've recorded after I've gone to an amusement park and my voice is shot, and so it sounds really weird and squeaky. I think in recent memory, the worst time I had a cold, and I it was so weird. I don't know. I was just really hyper, and I hadn't even taken anything for it, and that appeared on... I guess it was one of my first April Fool's little specials with the, the Joker takes over and it was just Stella and laughing gas. But anyways, here I am. I think for the most part, my voice is pretty normal. I also feel really hyper right now because I went and got a peppermint mocha because it was a chilly day and I thought, yes, peppermint mocha at Starbucks. So now I feel like really peppy and I'm ready to go through with these reviews. I want to put out there on a sadder note, uh, just that my thoughts and prayers are with the families and the victims of the Texas church shooting. And I don't know, it's these things consistently are happening. And, and then, you know, recently we had over, I guess it was, it was October 31. It was Halloween. We had that drive through, I guess you would consider it by the World Trade Center Memorial in New York City and just, oh my gosh, you know, what a reminder of, unfortunately, just what a fallen world we're living in. And uh, for me, you know, I'm just sort of waiting, waiting to be taken and, and go on to the next place. But I only wish that 
we could all do our part and, and love each other and make this world that we're living in, you know, for the time being a better place. And each time these things happen, I kid you not, people, I continually am thinking about tattooing, getting a tattoo that is, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and just the, the three virtues, the three Christian virtues of uh, faith, hope, and love, and that love is the greatest one of these. So, my goodness, you know, I just feel like symbolic. I, I need to do that, and then you know, if any ever anyone would see it, then they would be able to, uh, ugh, I don't know, maybe I would impact somebody or it would just be a good reminder for myself. But each time I'm like, oh, maybe this is something I should do, but I haven't done it yet, listeners. But yeah, my thoughts and prayers go out to, to all the victims there. And gosh, let's just stop this senseless violence and just love each other. Let's just love each other. That's all I'm asking. Hey, guess what, guys? It is my birthday month. Super excited about it. If you're a friend on Facebook, I think probably this is the time when you feel like I'm being really obnoxious because I usually count down, though it's been a couple of days since I've actually counted down, but I just have fun doing that. And it's been great so far. I have gotten to see a couple movies, not necessarily in November, but I saw It, of course, and I recently met up with my mother again, and we saw Blade Runner 2049. She saw Blade Runner, the director's cut, at an art house film that's where she lives that we like to go to. So she saw that for the first time, and I had seen it recently. So we both met up and saw Blade Runner 2049, which I thought was really well done. I almost want to go back and rewatch Blade Runner. I, I saw the, I guess, theatrical version because there was the voiceover. I know that there are like five different versions. And then rewatch 2049, but I thought it was really great. And I'm looking forward to Murder on the Orient Express. Just read that book, knocked that out pretty quickly. And just saw Thor, obviously, with that beginning. Oh, man, the devil's anus. I laughed and laughed at that. And the thing about me, especially with the people that I go with. I like to hang out with the Sawyers, as you know. If I laugh, the two eldest Sawyers laugh with me. But what's funny is the eldest Sawyer girl will say things like, it's not even funny. And then I'll accuse her. Well, you know, you were laughing with me. But I think, and and people agree with me. I know Don has said this as well. And I think Josh too, just that my laugh, I think gets other people going. So when Hulk, well, I guess, yeah, when Hulk will say, is coming up, he says, we're coming up on the devil's anus. I mean, just who expects that to be a sentence? And this isn't spoiling anything, but I think I just laughed and laughed and it continued through the next scene. And then something really bad was going to happen in the next scene. And so I tried to not think about it. And then I started laughing again. And then it happened again when somebody jumped out of a plane and hit the Rainbow Bridge. But I want to spoil about that. I laughed and laughed. So, oh, man, it was great. I really liked it. I think I thought it was really well done. And I especially like, I mean, Kate Blanchett is amazing. I really appreciate her as an artist and as an actress. And I think she did a wonderful job as Hella. I think maybe the first one I, I really, I enjoyed maybe slightly more just be like the origin and everything and, and seeing him. But this one, as I continue to think about it, it's sort of growing on me. And I actually saw it twice. I saw it the Thursday evening, 10 p.m. show. And then I went with a couple students wanted me to go with them. So I went with them and saw it again on Saturday. So I've seen it twice and I do keep thinking about it. And maybe it's growing on me, but certainly better than two. I think it's just maybe one and three are, are very close. I want to talk about 
something that happened in there, but I don't want to spoil anybody. And I just think, I'll just say that Sif, I think, was a really, it was an obvious absence that Sif wasn't there. And I was confused about that. And I hope that we get her back because that's certainly, that's my shipper right there with Thor. And then coming up, of course, is Justice League. Someone for my birthday uh, offered to take me, I guess, the 16th, so the day before it comes out. So we'll see. I, I'm actually, I guess I have no expectations right now. I'm hopeful that it's not bad. Just I don't want them to, I don't want the movie to drag down the milestone, I think, that, that Wonder Woman was able to accomplish. So let's hope, let's hope. And then uh, you got Punisher coming out on Netflix. Yeah, speaking of Netflix, oh my goodness. So I started watching House of Cards. And I've decided that, number one, I don't have cable. It's just so expensive. And so I ended up going and doing the PS View thing because I have a PS4, uh, which is great. But they don't get the CW. So then last year I was watching, you know, Flash, Supergirl, Arrow, and then later the 100 on my little device because you can get the app. And that's just, I don't want to be holding up my phone for 40 minutes at a time. It's just, it was just annoying. So I've decided that I'm not going to watch any of that stuff as it's airing and I'll just wait, I guess, until it comes on Netflix. So then I was trying to figure out what should I watch. So I ended up starting watching House of Cards and I thought, oh, this is really enjoyable. And uh, well, yeah, I know because of all the bad stuff that's been going on in House of Cards with it's, it's not the most uplifting of shows, but now with this, this crazy stuff that's been going on. That's another thing I should say that my heart's my heart, my thoughts, my prayers are going out to all these victims that that are coming forward and I think in general I I feel like unfortunately this is probably a small minority of the stuff that's happening every day and that I think we always need to be on guard and, and look out for everyone. Oh my goodness. I oh, I don't know. The world the world is is a, a mess, but all these people now that are coming forward, of course, with Kevin Spacey is the, is the latest one. Just learned something about Joss Whedon uh, last night from Donovan. Like all of this stuff is is insane. But what I'm happy about is that people in power are being taken down to a certain extent. Not like I'm not trying to be an anarchist, but just saying that all these people are afraid, right? But it only takes one voice, I think, to call out to them. Or, or against them, and then other people will follow suit, which is really ironic because in season two, right, Claire Underwood in House of Cards is being interviewed, and then she talks about her sexual assault by the general, who now a four-star general, and then someone calls while she's there, and so it's it's a really weird irony that that you know, true life was almost mimicking art. Of course, she's not the one who's brought up in charges, but just that stuff. So anyways, watching that on Netflix, just finished season two, whether I'll continue, I don't know. But I do, I like the Rachel character. And so I guess I'm trying to go through and I know that my heart's going to be broken with whatever happens to her. So I just kind of want to get the bruising over with. And Punisher's coming out soon. And I'm not sure. Oh, watch Stranger Things, which is great. Lots of shipping, which was lovely. I felt like I was watching The Exorcist sometimes, so that was a little scary. And yeah, it's just a lot of great stuff. Of course, Star Wars, which is really exciting. But I'm going to talk about Star Wars a little bit later. There's a reason why 
I had a Star Wars podcast sponsor because I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But for my birthday, going down to Florida, going down to Florida to visit with Josh and Don's going to meet us as well. And uh, we're just going to hang out together. Josh shares my birthday month. He's a little bit later and we're just going to hang out, which will be great because we won't have the stressor of San Diego Comic-Con hanging over us. And we're going to go to Universal. That's the only reason I'm going is because we can go to Universal. I've never been Harry Potter Park, Marvel Park. I'm so excited. I've always wanted to go on the Hulk ride. So I'm super pumped about that. But yeah, and then that's just the 17th through the 20th or so. And then the 21st, I don't know. And then I'll, I'll be going down uh, to be with my parents. And now my brother and sister-in-law and nephew are also there in the same town. And my best friend who just got married, also in the same town. So it's like one-stop shopping. I'll run a 5K on on Thanksgiving, it's called the Drumstick Dash here. I know that there's like a turkey trot around other places. So, yeah, lots of fun things are happening. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a fun episode because, well, I'm already having fun, actually. But I get to do another Birds of Prey issue. I feel like it's been so long. I know Ian Miller has also thought that it has been so long. And I have lots of emails, I feel, or any comment comments and things that I want to talk about. And, yeah. So, without further ado, I think I'll, I'll get into this. Uh, this should be fun. And then, you know, in the future, you can look out for, of course, the anniversary episode. I think part of it... Josh, Don, and I will actually record while we're all together, probably just the commentary part, and then we already know what we're doing for the reviews and things, but we won't have the modern issues yet, so we probably will wait, I think, on that. But yeah, you can expect that. And then January, I think you'll find Tom back on here because it's JLA, some JLA issues. And then February, of course, there's the Shipper Spotlight with uh Don and we just decided last night what we're going to do which uh <laughs> I I didn't expect it was funny cuz we were talking about it I had one idea actually a little while ago and it was more of a social commentary again uh but we had just on the LGBT couple so I thought maybe we won't do that so we had a couple options going and I thought he was going to pick one option but he went with the other option which is really funny but now it's also going to be really frustrating because it's going to be hard to pick to narrow down in this particular thing but i'll surprise you it is comics related but it's not dc related i should say so just be aware of that and something else that's i'm considering is a miyazaki tribute episode because i've really wanted to talk his films i'd love to do like a studio ghibli thing but there's so many of them but I, I've already got my partner that I'm going to pull out and, and talk with. And I think I know of a good time to potentially do that because he has come back from retirement to do an honor to um, a film in honor of his nephew, I think it is, unless it's his grandson, but I think it's his nephew who passed away. I think it'll be that'll be the time to potentially release that. So, yeah. And then who knows? Oh my goodness, there's so many amazing things happening. I think, you know, the world is a wonderful place and there's joys to be found. Um, so <laughs> don't hate. Seriously, just don't hate. Uh, just love and, and appreciate. But anyways, let's get into the reviews. I'm excited about this. This is, it's been a while. I can't even remember the last time that I did a Birds of Prey. It had to have been, oh my goodness, if it was this long ago, then it was last December with the uh, 
ravens and things, which I skipped ahead a little bit. So if that's true, it's been almost a year since I've done Birds of Prey. I could be wrong, though. So anyways, this is Birds of Prey, back row number one, also called, like, back row and Black Canary. The cover date is February 1998. Yes, I'm sort of going back and forth. I'm doing the best I can, but when I do larger stories like Cataclysm, instead of going issue by issue, I like to do the whole story. So some of the dates may get off, but I'm trying, you know, to do as chronological as possible. It's going to get easier, I think, once I get into Birds of Prey, actually hitting its monthly run and then bringing in Nightwing and Batgirl and things like that. So anyways, February 1998, yes, writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Greg Land, anchor Drew Garachi, or, yeah, we'll go with that, and uh, colorist Gloria Vasquez. As Black Canary battles a group of gun-toting villains, Batgirl leaps into the fray. Batgirl urges Canary to not hurt them, revealing they are controlled by the Mad Hatter. Scattering the villains, the women interrogate one. Free to the Mad Hatter's control, he reveals he is a judge and that he last remembers having dinner at a club. Suspecting the Mad Hatter may be using the club, Batgirl and Black Canary take to the rooftops. Batgirl starts to become suspicious as Dinah is not acting normally. She seems skittish, wanting to call in help. She's not using her car as she should. She keeps encouraging Batgirl to call in Batman. At the club, they discover the Mad Hatter. He has taken the head of Arkham Asylum under his control, Jeremiah Arkham, a.k.a., and is preparing to release all the villains. Black Canary declares this is too big and insists Batgirl contact Batman, but Batgirl refuses, saying they can handle it. They are discovered, and while occupied with the Mad Hatter's goons, the villain escapes. The heroes pursue and catch up to the Hatter at the asylum, where he's already released a rogues gallery of Batman villains. Batgirl covers Canary's escape, but is captured. When she awakes, she is bound, and the villains, particularly the Joker, threaten her. First, though, they go after Canary, who, after they are gone, doubles back to rescue Batgirl. Black Canary insists that there isn't time to get her loose. She needs Batgirl to tell her how to reach Batman so she can get help. Batgirl finally relents and tells her where to find the Batcave. The illusion is dispelled and Spellbinder stands triumphantly before Oracle, who is tied to a chair. Spellbinder explains how she knows Barbara is Oracle and is amused the crippled girl has fantasies of being Batgirl. She leaves with a group of gunmen to find the Batcave. Once they're gone, Oracle frees herself. Spellbinder and her goons arrive at the location described by Oracle as the hidden entrance to the Batcave, but there is nothing here. Realizing they've been lied to, Spellbinder races back to torture the information out of Barbara. Arriving back, she finds Oracle has escaped. She starts searching for her, but Oracle catches her by surprise and easily knocks her out, leaving her for the police. Back at the clock tower, Oracle calls Black Canary, who is out of the country, on a mission. She wants to talk when Donna gets back. Meanwhile, Blockbuster is not amused, yes, Blockbuster, that Spellbinder's mission has failed. He decides to take a more direct approach regarding Oracle and orders to kill her. Next up, according to the back of this issue, Birds of Prey Siege, or is it? The answer is no, it is not. And I think uh, Jordan Gorfinkel at one point said that Siege may have been a later arc in the actual monthly title. But this is going to be the transition point. This is actually the last issue that we have before we go into the monthly title. The letters page is interesting because fans are consistently writing in thinking that this book is canceled and being astounded that that is even a possibility. Uh, asking, you know, what what could it be? What could the, the sales numbers be? Even with the bi-monthly or quarterly schedule, how could it be 
canceled. Jordan Gorfinkel is optimistic that it will turn into a monthly comic, which is interesting just to look back through all this stuff. So this is the end of these little one shots. And I think uh, Gorfinkel also, is he called Gorf? I think he says that. Uh, Gorfinkel also makes a comment that they had such leisure, I think, and a great opportunity in having this schedule because they were really able to produce fine work because there wasn't this pressure of monthly. So which is interesting because once you're on the pressure of monthly, do they keep up that work and from what i've read of birds of prey absolutely and you can you can certainly pat the back of chuck dixon wow well this issue starts off with a bang uh because batgirl's making a joke about ripped tights you've gotta love her costume cut-ups folks yuck yuck i always like these stories that everything's an illusion or a dream and I think the only thing going against this particular issue is the fact that readers have to go into it knowing it is an illusion or a dream. Because Black Canary and Batgirl would never be hanging out, with the exception of, of course, Batgirl Year One. But the thing is, you know, with the current era design of Black Canary, it just wouldn't make sense otherwise. So I think while, you know, someone could potentially try to argue against it, I think you have to go in knowing this is, there's something weird going on. So then the mystery is, who is behind all of this and why? I want to tell you about your, this spellbinder here. So during the Underworld Unleashed crossover, if you recall, Shagalicious was on and we reviewed that together. Delbert Billings, who was the original spellbinder, turned down Neuron's offer of immense power. And he was actually shot bang bang by his girlfriend, Faye Moffitt, who then became the third spellbinder, also known as Lady Spellbinder. So that's just a little backstory there. So it always goes back to Shagalicious. Now, within this issue, I'm a little incredulous about two things. Number one, how convenient it was that Spellbinder chose Batgirl to be the illusion, thinking that it would just be a wish fulfillment moment. I mean, ironic, right? She's going to choose Batgirl like, hmm, this will bring her joy. And then it happened to be actually the actual person who was Batgirl. So I find that amusing. It almost would have been funny as like a what if to have like Supergirl or Wonder Woman. And then you're like, why is Barbara Gordon? Then it would have really been wonky. And I think perhaps more believable or like everyone would have been confused. Number two, that Oracle slash Babs was tracked down at all. No one knows who she is. Well, I shouldn't say that. A select few knows who she is, and it seems unlikely that anyone would know that she was in a wheelchair. Also, couldn't any random person in a wheelchair potentially be kidnapped and thought to be Oracle? So I'm not really sure. There seems to be some sort of leap that Spellbinder is just like, I know you're Oracle. You're in a wheelchair. But, I mean, there's not just one person that's in the wheelchair in in the population of Gotham City. So I'm a little, eh, I don't know about that. It's sad that we have to see scenes from the killing joke, but I suppose it makes sense since that is what knocks some sense into Babs that this whole situation is wrong. I really like the scene with Barbara crawling to her chair. It's certainly painful to watch given how difficult it clearly was, but in that scene you see that Batgirl never went away and how determined and strong she is. There's also a connection here with the modern Batgirl story that I will review later with Mad Hatter because here he is again. And I don't understand why. And and I think Donovan, potentially, if he were here, he'd be able to explain this. But why is he thought to be so dangerous? You know, this is when we did Madwell of Donovan and I, I thought, oh, would Joker really be able to hold up 
in in a fight against Batman, and I think, you know, is Mad Hatter this bad? I understand if he's got a chip and a hat, if he's got his underlings, absolutely, but him himself, I don't know. So it just seems to be maybe he could be taken down easily, but everyone's sort of shying away from him. I like the fact that Batgirl has just as strong a mind as Batman because she's fighting this illusion the whole way. She's questioning everything, all the weird stuff that Black Canary is doing, just as Batman would do. So I'm appreciative that she is not portrayed as weak, which I never would think that Chuck Dixon would actually do. We're also setting up Blockbuster, I think, in a bigger way. We know that Blockbuster, as well as Calculator, will have a big impact in Oracle's history and the Birds of Prey history, so I'm glad that we're setting up here, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. I'm going to give this whole issue an 8.5 out of 10 birds. I wish I could have really believed it was an illusion, like Oracle regaining her legs or something like that. Like, <gasps> you know, like maybe that would have been more believable than her just being Batgirl. But uh, there are some coincidences. I don't think that she would have been so easily found, but it's a great little issue potentially to end with. And I think it has enough of a little open end that we can lead right into the monthly title, which I'm excited about, which will be great. It's been so long. And speaking of the monthly title, I was talking with Carolyn Coca, as you know, uh, the author of Superwomen at San Diego Comic-Con. And given that my spreadsheet can go on for days and days, I think what I'll do with the Birds of Prey stuff, as far as... This might be hard. It might be a task. I'll, I'll let you guys know. But I think I might tackle arcs at a time, arcs at a time. So instead of single issues, tackle multiple issues of, of one story. So we'll see if this works, if it's manageable. It's going to be trickier once I've got that. And Batgirl with Cassandra Kane going on and Nightwing. Oh, my goodness. So I've just got to prioritize, I think, what I want to do. We'll see. We will see. Oracle in July of 1998 also appeared in Nightwing number 22. And this is a little weird because I'm doing this. And then right after in 23, he's in this crossover. It's the Brotherhood of the Fist, I think it is, which is the storyline that Josh, Don, and I are going to be reviewing. There's a spoiler there. So anyways, though, this is Nightwing 22. I'm not doing a full review. Just want to tell you how she appears. It's one of those one-panel situations. And this is Hospital Perilous. And I believe this is part two of it. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Scott McDaniel, inker Carl Story, and colorist Roberta Tews. Uh, Dick is on a day with Bridget Clancy. Boo. And they're out to a movie. Both are enjoying their date. But then suddenly Dick's beeper shows him that Oracle is trying to get in contact with him. And she's freaking out and saying, oh my gosh, you're alive, because she heard that Nightwing was shot and brought to a hospital. But it actually turns out that it's N-I-T-E-W-I-N-G, Nightwing, who is Tad. And he was calling himself Nightwing, but of course, you know, you can't really read how to spell the Nightwing when they're saying the Nightwing unless you're the reader. So they thought that they had actually killed him. But uh, now there are a bunch of people being hired and going after him. So then he has to actually break off the date and go and save him. So a bit of a shipper moment just because Oracle is hysterical and she's thankful that he's alive and everything, but not too much of a development there. Okay, well, those are our two reviews there. I finally am going to do some listener feedback and email. Mail time. 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 
here. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. It's been a couple episodes, and I have a big apology to make to somebody. Let me first look at some of these comments on my episodes. I have two comments on two different episodes. I guess one comment on two different episodes. Yeah. One is on episode 146, which was with the curmudgeon that everybody loves, Tom Paneris. It's from Ian Miller. He says, excellent show. Glad the newcomer Bensons could win the enjoyment of the veteran comics fan. I really enjoyed the analysis of the two modern series. I will continue patiently waiting for the birds of prey. After all, it's Bab's best series, and so I can't put it off forever. And I won stuff, apparently. Smiley emoji. You absolutely did, Ian. And here I am still, like, not going to the shirt shop that I should be going to. But don't worry. I have the design, and I'm... I need to go there at some point. Like, really, yeah. I actually need to email you and ask what your shirt size is. But yes, don't worry. I have not forgotten you. And then on episode 147, and that was with the reporter that doesn't do his research, a.k.a. Josh Bertoni. This was from Ian Miller as well, our super fan. Ian Prime, as I call him. Really enjoy the coverage of Cataclysm. I recently bought it on Comixology during a comicsology sale, and it's a really solid story in itself and a solid lead-up to No Man's Land. Though, won't you be jumping backwards quite a bit to catch up with the Birds of Prey before that ginormous crossover? Yes, a little bit. I, I'll i be dancing around, certainly, and I've got to figure out how I'm doing No Man's Land because I know that they just put out new trades, and I think I'm going to just stick with the trades I have, and then i got to figure out how it's... Oh my gosh. If you only knew what I had to go through. But yeah, it's going to be a little crazy um, doing the different stuff. So I'll figure it out somehow. What would you think about a Barbara Gordon solo title similar to the Supergirl Being Super miniseries that came out recently? Out of continuity, aimed at a slightly different audience than the quote-unquote mainstream Batman titles. I think it might be nice to bridge the gap between the mainstream universe and DC superhero girls, which I think the current Larson title is trying unsuccessfully to fill. Also, all this talk of Explorer podcasts <laughs> makes me really want to make a violent Vindicators podcast about Steph and Helena Bertinality. But that would require me to actually learn how to podcast. And this is a little sad emoji. Oh, well. Uh, first of all, I would love to have an out-of-continuity Barbara Gordon solo title that is um, light and fun and perhaps is a nice little team up or just has her going up against a classic rogue from her rogue hour. I mean, the Cavalier, I was thinking about him pretty recently. I think it would also be nice to have something that has Steph again as Batgirl and perhaps maybe that future, you know, uh, the future, the glimpse of the future that she had and, and sort of sorting that out, you know, a little six issue thing. But yeah, I think it'd be nice to, um, have something that doesn't, well, you know, this is ironic because in all honesty, Hope Larson's not really sticking with continuity anyways. Like, it's not like she's connected with the other DC titles, so it's almost as if Barbara Gordon's title right now is out of continuity or its own little universe. But I just wonder what it would look like to bridge the gap between, you know, what we're reading now in DC superhero roles. Because, eh, I don't know. I think... You know, you can easily do an all-ages title that has 
something that's solid and worthwhile and has depth to it, but it's, you know, worth everyone's time. Kind of like I'm thinking Lumberjanes right now or uh, Gotham Academy potentially and have Barbara Gordon uh, doing something fun, just doing her own thing. You know what would be nice is um, one of my favorite Spider-Man tales is Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. And this was, like, you know, technically out of continuity. They were all in high school. It would be really interesting to have, you know, Barbara Gordon in high school, but then surrounded by other people that she knows, like maybe Dick Grayson is there. I think Bruce Wayne's not an option, so maybe he's faculty member. And then maybe you have, like, Jason Bard. And then you've got, you know, interactions with that, just like her in high I, I'd be up for that for sure. And as for your Violent Vindicators podcast, I would love for you to make that, actually, because as I have said, Helena is someone who really intrigues me, and I want to have discussions about her, but I'm not really sure how to formulate my thoughts or my questions about her. And I think that you should definitely be making that. And I know that you also are a big fan of Steph. And I think, as Josh said, thanks for the spoiler, right? We thanks for the spoiler. I think we need a Stephanie Brown podcast and examining her time as spoiler as well as Robin for her brief tenure there. And I say this very seriously, Ian. Please let me know if you want to start something. I will absolutely help you in any way that I can. Help you with the programs, all of that stuff. Uh, Email me. We can chat on Skype and do that. Um, Because, you know what, this is like a major pay it forward because I only, because of the blessings and grace of other people, have was able to start this like Michael Bailey, George Berryman, uh, Josh, even though we weren't really friends back at that time, Brad. Uh, yeah, like, so lots of people really helping me out. Kevin Cushing, you remember that guy? So seriously, I, I owe it to, I stand on the shoulders of others. So if I will help you in any way that I can. So absolutely. Okay. Well, now I get to do some emails and first I have to issue a great and giant apology to Michael Ridge and He sent this on August 13th. I'm so sorry. And the last time I did emails, I think, was with Tom Panarese. And I was doing stuff about Carolyn Coca's book. And I completely forgot. I don't know. I just, like, skipped over his email. So I'm so sorry. Whew. So here we are. Salve, Stella. I really enjoyed your interview with Carolyn Coca. I enjoyed it enough to order Superwomen, Gender, Power, and Representation from Amazon. It is most enlightening that Dan DiDio was not the first comic executive to succumb to the delusion that his personal prejudice was the real truth, despite reviews and sales figures that showed otherwise. I hope her Eisner Award gives this book greater readership in comic fandom. Now that your vintage reviews have gotten to the beginning of The Birds of Prey, I am eagerly awaiting more of the creation of the team. Me too. I'm also looking forward to interviews, interviews with people that, whoo, man, Chuck Dixon again, which will be lovely. Maybe some artists. I think the editor, Gorf. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to Gail Simone. I think, ooh, 
It'll be good. Looking forward to another hour of the STC Diary. Oh, boy. I couldn't do that program without some breaks. Meh. Me neither. Interviews with voice actors are fascinating. I can't believe how good some of them are. I listen to a lot of old-time radio dramas in the car, and I'm always amazed at how good they are even 50, 60, or 70 years later. But those actors all work together in the same room. These animated voice actors sometimes create their parts alone, and yet we mostly get the sense of real interaction between characters in the final product. Thanks for continuing all the work to produce BTO, Michael Ridge. Thank you, Michael, for... uh, for Baron with me and there's your email and I appreciate you please don't hold it against me that I skipped over your email there and you I think by this time you probably finished listening to SDCC so you can always write in if you want to about that now I have several emails from you know who my once beloved Donovan Morgan Grant. So he calls me out a couple times. So ready for this, people? Stella. Here we go. Regarding background number 14, 2016. I was surprised how low of an opinion you and Pop <laughs> Star's singing sensation Panneries had of the story. I reread it after listening to your thoughts and found myself puzzled by the vehemently bad reaction. I'll start off by saying that, yes, the continuity has a big hole in it if Bads has just moved to Gotham from Chicago. That's something that an editor should have caught. Additionally, I personally rolled my eyes at Barbara's tough little time in the hallway from girls thinking she was uncool. That came across as a pathetic attempt to make Babs the underdog in every scenario, which is unbelievable to me. Maybe she's better at making friends, or maybe not. But the scene is purely there to evoke sympathy for the reader. When Babs has her perfect, robotic, eidetic memory and crime-fighting life to enjoy. That scene felt like it was from another comic entirely. But the Dick and Babs stuff I really didn't mind. Dick slipping that he knows about Babs' home life was a wrong thing to do, and he's called on it, and he apologizes after. And that's about it for their tension. I'm confused at the negative reaction towards it, because Dick and Babs had crossed wires all the time in Back Row Year One. They're also more friendly and copacetic in the present. If the reaction is due to DC's propensity to have them be at odds in every crossover adventure, then I think I understand. I don't think there's a single story since the New 52 where Barbara hasn't been mad at Dick. So I guess I went in expecting that. In terms of the continuity, it's very clear DC's still kinking with what's established and what's yet to be re-established. So I don't much bother seeing if it's done right here. That doesn't make the plot hole right, but I suppose I'm ready to help Larson tell her story, and I'm ready to forget about it all once it's done. So once again, pretty please. What was so bad about the characterization in background number 14? Of course, by the time you read this, you'll have read 15, or in my case, 16, and it might be much, much worse. But for this issue, I found it to be perfectly harmless and inconsequential. Keep on shipping! DMG. And please listen to questions we don't have answers. And I just asked them last night if they had been talking about sort of all the sexual assault things that have been going on. They certainly have. And I think you guys should absolutely, I mean, they wrestle with tough, like social, cultural, political questions. And it's, it's absolutely worthwhile to check out. And, and I'm being honest about that, not because he's my once beloved. Okay, let me talk to you about this, guys. I thought about that email after I received it. And I guess perhaps I didn't, you know, put into words as well as I would have liked. And I was happy that I had Tom because Tom and I were on the same page and we both didn't like it. So now it's been a couple months. 
and I read 15, which I liked more. I thought it was better. And then I read 16, which I won't spoil. But then as I was making my notes for 16, I decided, you know, I really need to go back and read number 14. So I go back and read number 14, and I have to say that I liked it more. So before I answer that question, I now have a question for you, Don, as well as listeners. And that's, should an issue stand alone and be enough, like self-contained enough to be enjoyable, if that makes sense? Like you can read it on its own and you're like, this is, this is good. This is great. Or is it okay that maybe it's not self-contained enough to be enjoyable, but reading the arc as a whole, everything comes together from the beginning and everything uh, seems better written from the beginning. So my example is reading 14, as you know, I did not enjoy it as much. I think there were, it was lots of questions and leaps and confusions. And I think at that point in time, I asked Tom, you know, how much should an author or writer be leading you and how much should, you know, how much mystery should there be? How much should it be apparent that you know what's happening? But then I come back and I'm like, oh, these things are clicking now. Like, this makes sense that she did this and all that stuff. But should that happen? You know, is that the way that comics are supposed to be? Like, I, you read them piecemeal and then you read them all together. And so there's a conflict here because as, if you're a monthly comic subscriber, you're reading issue by issue. But then, you know, there are some stories that I get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I get as a whole arc, Lumberjanes. I get as a whole, like I get them by the trade. I'm trying to think about the things. And it's sometimes it's good to catch up with stories and just read the whole trade. And, and yeah, they work absolutely well together. And so there's some weird, I'm trying to work through this because I've got a problem, even though I liked 14 better after rereading it, I've got a problem with the fact that I was confused and I didn't like 14. I come back now that more has been revealed, because basically 16 has revealed much, and now it all makes sense. Should that be the case? So I want to talk with some peoples about that. So please write in what you think about how comics are presented. And, I, man, yeah, this is an argument perhaps for writing for the trade and perhaps issuing trades rather than single issues right now anyways. But... What do you guys think about that? So going back to what he said, I still, while I did like it better, I still have problems with their two interactions. And I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, even in Batgirl Year One, as you mentioned, which you you took a knife right there because you know how much I love that story. He, you know, he's a bit of a jerk, obviously, to her and, and uh, doesn't want her to be in the boys club doesn't think that she belongs. And I think there's a sense of that right here, but it does seem like he, he pushes a little bit more. <sighs> that interaction is just weird for me, especially with what she says. It's not just him. It's, it's just like the writing for both of them, like her saying, you know, why doesn't Batman call me? I thought was really weird because again, that continuity, I think that's messing with me because Batman shouldn't even know really that she exists. So it needs to decide, when her tenure started, but why is he going to call you? I thought that was a dumb thing to say, but just him blurting out all of that personal information. I thought that that was uh, pretty dumb. I think knowing that it's Barbara Gordon is one thing to know that, you know, he's got the up and up on you, which 
I think that's as far as we need to know that he's a jerk, right? So, you know, you're Barbara Gordon and I know your father's commissioner. I think that would have been enough. So I just think it's, there's some weird stuff going on there, but I can understand what they're getting at. But I think he goes over the top. The second interaction is weird because I don't understand why she's apologizing for what she said. You know, she's asking about his home life and then he says how he's an orphan. And then all of a sudden she feels like she's the bad person. This is going back to, for whatever reason, I feel like Hope Larson really uh, depicts Barbara Gordon as a victim. At, and many times, and, and one of those victims that thinks it's their fault or, you know, goes back to the person perhaps that's harming them. This is one instance that, oh my gosh, I, you know, I overstepped. You, you didn't overstep. You asked a question. He answered it. It's not like you insulted him and said something about his mother and his father. And then, you know, that other, that time at the diner, right, uh, where it says he didn't mean to hurt me or about, you know, Ethan couple pot all that stuff so it's just weird writing and uh that's just the i feel like it's gotten better but 14 i I think it was just a little off i i certainly see where you're coming from and i think there are just points in the first conversation that could have stopped at one point and then it would have made sense that yeah he's being a jerk and this is what it was like but then there's weird stuff that she's saying so it's like uh it's i can't all blame it on robin i've, I've got to blame it on what batgirl is saying as well so basically blaming the writer on their interactions and as for you know dick and babs in the present at, at that point it's still a little weird what he's doing especially with you know seeing the kiss and and then him moving away and but in, in 14 he's touching her hair and all that stuff and then the weird stuff that she's saying with, uh, you know, it's my fault with the kids and it, it's, uh, it's just weird. I don't know if I, I don't hate it as much now as I did, but I still have problems with certain things that are happening. So I guess if I were re- to regrade it, which I haven't done that in a while, regrading arcs or like, how is this arc as a whole? It would fare a little bit better, but I think there is still some weird stuff that's going on. So hopefully that uh, that answers your question. I liked it a little bit better, but I still have some disagreements. He then addresses me again. And uh, this is regarding the Batman Batgirl. Yes, he says me again, and then he's got a little SpongeBob gif on my email. He says, I meant to write in after you covered Batman Batgirl two episodes ago, but missed the due date. I really found your take interesting, especially your high grade of a 9 out of 10. Not that I disagree with the grade necessarily, but your analysis didn't sound as though you were so receptive. Additionally, it was written by Kelly Puckett, writer of that girl frenzy issue we so vehemently disagreed on last year. I love disagreeing with Donovan. It's super fun. I have a few general questions, as I found your approach to the story quite interesting. This is a flashback story, implicitly set after the million-dollar debut of Batgirl, where her origin story had been untouched. So this was written pre-Batgirl Year One, which, if I recall correctly, was done in 2003-ish. Yes, you're correct. It was 2003. My question is, how do you think a rookie Babs Gordon Batgirl story should be told? We've had a few, including her origin story in Detective 359, her secret origin story in Post-Crisis, this story, Batgirl Year One, the Batman Confidential three-parter with Catwoman, and the new 52 zero-year issue. What do you think should be the fundamental requirements for an inexperienced but early days Batgirl tale? Aha. I think, (laughs) inexperienced, I think she's got to make mistakes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's similar to, I think... What we saw with uh, Stephanie Brown as Batgirl, where she was making mistakes, but she was learning from them. 
they may have been mistakes that were fatal, not for her, but for another person. But she's growing, I think. I, I just don't like, and this is something that, you know, in superhero films, I always, I always look at and analyze because sometimes when superheroes get their powers, all of a sudden they're able to do wonderful things. But, Really, I, I think it's going to take time for them to hone those abilities and work on it. So I think that it'd be really new for her, obviously, if, if this was, you know, early days. So detectiving, I think, is one thing that she should have down okay. Because if she's a librarian and she's got her, her smarts, I think that that should be great. I think knowing perhaps which avenue to go, you know, whether after a bad guy or, or something else or how best to go in and attack a bad guy. If there's like a warehouse full, like where do you go? Uh, because Batman can probably see like all sorts of exits in his mind and then he drops down. I think that's sort of strategy, fighting strategy she doesn't necessarily have. And... I think um, she's not a I'm trying to think of the word here. I even had a student tell me this today that she was uh what's the word? You know, or they fall down and that kind of stuff. Oh my goodness, people are probably yelling at their iPods. But anyways, not ditzy. That's not what it is. I don't know. But anyway, someone who falls like that that kind of stuff shouldn't happen. But I think. She might be overconfident and uh, make mistakes there. And I think then it will humble her and then she'll be more cautious. I don't know that necessarily I would care for her to, to is something to lead to the death of somebody else, whether innocent or not. But, but I think certainly, I think mistakes, mistakes should be made for it to be realistic. And I think from those mistakes, she learns. So I just don't want her to start off and be like amazing. So those are sort of, I think, just making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And clearly, you know, a beginner, I think intelligence-wise, she should be as intelligent as she has always been. But physically or, you know, just war strategy and um, sort of statecraft, I think that she is probably at a lower level and needs to learn from that. I asked this. Back to Donovan's email. I asked this because you were pretty critical of all the rookie mistakes Barbara was making in a story that was clearly early days for her. Things like hurting herself when jumping through a window. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. She is not, she shouldn't be a ditzy, ditzy is not the word. Oh my goodness. Someone who falls down. Clumsy. Thank you. She's not a clumsy person. I think that that's one of those things that she should realize that it's going to hurt going through glass. Not knowing an escape route, ah, or even doubting herself felt like perfectly reasonable ways to show her greenness without making her look like a buffoon. I guess I, uh, I, I'm a hypocrite now. Then, of course, there's a scene where she accidentally kills a guy. Yeah, don't like that. I don't like that. I had no problem with how it played out because it was done in the space of maybe two seconds. Yeah, but she should realize that there's like a fatal stick in her hand. Ugh, I don't like it. Guy pulls gun on everyone in the room. Batgirl grabs the nearest object to stop him. He gets it in the head. Reaction and instinct overcame reason and strategy. There wasn't really time to think of much else, so I felt you were being unfair to your favorite hero. <laughs> but it is a strong mark of inexperience that I can see her being a bother. Intentional or not, she's got blood on her hands. Like how you asked when we did the killing joke, does this make you or other readers see Barbara in a different light? Personally, it doesn't bother me. 
because it was so clearly a mistake done for the right reasons and bothered her throughout the rest of the issue. The story is very grounded, going from moment to moment. The scene where she hesitated jumping those goons with an iron bar because of what she did with the fire poker spoke a lot about her morality. It's more of a direct interrogation on her views on killing than, say, in Back Row Year One, where her motive defense and the training simulation involved being lethal against her opponents and Batman called her out on it. I'm not saying either scene was wrong because I don't exactly believe every character in the Batman family must automatically come prepackaged with the same morality. It's not realistic. After finding Gotham and going through their own experiences, that would make for a different perspective in the sanctity of life, makes for stronger character in my opinion, or further defines what uh, divides said character from the rest of the group. See, the Huntress. Ah, the Huntress. You and me, we need to sit down and chat about her. Yeah, does this uh, make me see Barbara in a different light? You know, that she's got a death on her hand. <laughs> I think so. She just seems like a, it it's, makes it seem like her her origin story changes, I think, slightly. Because I think a death would change anyone. And it was a death by her hand, whether accidental or intentional. And I think that's going to shape her in a different way. So I, I feel like it should change my mind about her. I just didn't like that that happened to her uh, or, you know, that she did it. I also think that when I think to Becker Year One, it's lucky that she was in that simulation, but she was also, she was learning, but, you know, learning in a safe environment. And here she was learning in real time. And so I think, you know, the stakes are higher. And I think your perspective that the character needs to change to see like what, what she's done, just like what they've been doing with Batman and Alfred in modern tales right now. Uh, you know, I, I think your perspective of the character has to change with new information that you're gathering. And uh, it's interesting to try to fit that into everything else that she's done. And how does that fit in sort of thinking about the Comorant and the stuff that happened there and uh, that little girl and almost being shot and killed. And then the Joker, you know, how does this change potentially the, the Batgirl character? that this happened to her. <sighs> yeah. Well, she was certainly able, I mean, I'm glad that she, she showed hesitancy with the pipe. I think that, like I said, you know, making mistakes and growing from them is a big thing that I want to see. And, and you certainly see that there in that situation. But I almost wish that uh, you could see like a follow up to the story and potentially see what her thoughts are or, you know, does she encounter anything else and have some flashbacks to that death there? Is she just moving on? So I, I think uh, it needs to weigh heavy on her and I feel like it would weigh heavier on her because it was, you know, one of her first days out. So, yeah, I, I think it, it changes a little bit how I see her and uh, it also puts her, I kind of want to see or th rethink about all the stories if this, you know, actually happened, then how does everything else fit in with her? Okay, continuing on, bottom line, Batgirl should not kill, clearly. But a 19-year-old Barbara Gordon, new to the life of Batgirl, can kill in self-defense, be emotionally scarred from it, and assume a code of not killing from then on. But is that too much and unnecessary? You're unnecessary, your mileage may vary. Yeah, move on. Yeah, emotionally scarred from it. I don't know, did she show as much emotional scarring, though? Did she feel like that? Whoo! Which is kind of interesting to think about. I'd have to re I think I have to reread the story now with with all these thoughts in mind. 
Another question that you bring up often is Batman's presence in a Batgirl story. This definitely depends on her level of experience. In this kind of story where she's going up against the Joker, yeah, I really think he ought to be there. He shouldn't save the day for her because that's ultimately demeaning. But again, there should be a difference between a Batgirl story and a solo Batgirl story set in her first year. Yeah, and, you know, we don't want to go back to the Silver Age or anything, but we also know that Batman's pretty exclusive in his little club, so I feel like he probably would swoop in and uh, try to help her out. So, there you go. What I will agree with you on is the puzzling reaction Batgirl had to the Joker's insanity. I love Kelly Puckett and I've loved and I've loved virtually every Bat related story he's written, but he can be an obtuse writer at times and there are stories where it's not entirely clear what he's going for in terms of character. I don't get why Babs is laughing at Joker, although he historically hates being laughed at. That probably could have been written clearer. Finally, the art. Oh, man, Matt Haley is so good. He really needed to do more stuff. As the only other thing I've seen him on is that Batgirl Supergirl Elseworld story that you might be coming up on soon. That's all my thoughts. Feel free to throw this into the furnace, as is your want. Just remember, I know where you live, er, when you grew up. Donovan Morgan Rand. Yes, thank you for writing in. And I guess your main question before all that stuff was why I graded this particular story is so high, even though maybe some of my comments um, didn't point to that fact. And while I did have some issues with the characterization of Batgirl, I think I, well, I really liked having a soul tale. I liked um, the fact that she was working it out on her own and that Batgirl, Batman wasn't there with her, even though he was the one to throw the knife and cut her down from the little thing. And I especially like, I, I think perhaps the majority of my grade is coming in that interaction between her and Joker, which I thought was just really well done. So just overall, as a Batgirl story and a standalone, I thought that it was great, though I had some misgivings with the characterization and sort of the the rookie mistakes that she was making. So again, I do agree, you know, someone who is green, I think needs to make mistakes and move on from them. I just think there's a weirdness to the mistakes that she was making, like some were dumb, being clumsy, and then there were other ones that uh, were a little haphazard and, and doing this this crazy stuff. And, you know, now that I think about it, uh, with this kind of the way that Barbara Gordon is being portrayed now where she thinks about different avenues or situations that it could happen, I feel like the, the poker, she would have realized that that would have been maybe a bad instrument to have on hand. I mean, she probably doesn't have any of the tools that Batman has yet. She hasn't been gifted those yet. So, yeah, it's just interesting because now you almost also wonder what would Batman say that she killed somebody? Would he even give her a second thought about, yes, you you deserve to be in my little club? That sort of seems like (laughs) he'd he'd be a little upset that she had done that. Um, Yeah, because, I mean, there's a lesson to be learned, but she already made a mistake, and he's sort of a one-striker-out situation, so I'm not sure about that. I, uh, yeah, so I appreciate your thoughts, and you've certainly, obviously, I I feel like I've been rambling and not really coming up with anything great, but you've really made me think about this as well, and and you guys, listen out there, other than uh, DMG, please write in if you've read this story, what do you think about it, what do you think about what a Barbara Gordon uh, in her first years or so would look like and and all that stuff. Okay, well, thanks to everyone who wrote in. I really appreciate it. Sorry again if I missed you. I don't think I did anymore. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 15 and Batgirl 68 
slash 16. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Take Me by Ali and AJ. And welcome back. You know, I really like Allie and AJ. I remember when I worked at the Disney store, they had one song continually played, which I actually really like. And I think 
trying to figure out what the other song was. And then I sort of researched more and found uh, one song, which is currently, it's like an awesome, uplifting pop song about, you know, don't let anyone tell you that basically you're worth nothing because that's not true. You know, be who you are. And that's currently my alarm ringtone. And then they, uh, they were trying a new project. It's like Violet 83 or something like that. And I think they're, album that they were making because they only released one song as a single their album that they were making was uh released illegally and then they scrapped that project and now they're back to Ally and aj so that was that's their first single off of the new album that i don't know when it's coming out but i like it it's got the 80 vibes the 80s vibe which uh i'd love to hear what tom thinks about that particular song but here we go with the modern tales and both I liked both of these and these are they're both different and they both sort of strike me in, in very interesting ways. You know what I've noticed is that my voice might be fine, but my nose is still stuffed up, so I feel like people are gonna be able to tell that I'm not breathing out of my nose very well, so I do apologize for that. Maybe I should have waited another day. But anyways, back girl and the birds of prey number fifteen. Manslaughter, Part 1, Quarantine, which is interesting since I just did Cataclysm. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcelo Maiolo. Perfect attendance Jim Gordon is at the hospital, sick, and Babs is there with him. Suddenly, Lois Lane appears because the mayor and most of the city council is also out. Babs later rushes out on a call. At Gotham City Airport, Dinah is waiting for Ollie to arrive, but has to also rush out on a call. Helena's school day is canceled because many of the students are out sick. That happened to me last year, which is really interesting. I think we got out early. Helena gets the same call. You know what's bad, though? Sorry, but when we canceled school for that, the poor janitorial staff had to, like, wipe down everything so that because people are getting the flu and everything. Get your flu shots, people. I need to get mine. Anyways, back to this. The three birds meet up and find Professor Pig up to his shenanigans, but suddenly he gets sick as well. At the clock tower, the birds, plus Ollie, are discussing this epidemic and realize it is only hitting the male population. Babs checks on Alfred and Bruce, and Huntress checks in on Dick, all sick. Lois checks in with Clark and brings him up to speed and tells him to stay away from Gotham. The birds get a couple notifications of break-ins and go to address them, while Batgirl stays back in the clock tower to run the ops. Dinah runs into Harley, who is stealing medication for her pudding, Joker. Helena runs into Catwoman, who is borrowing things, and only decides to help out after thinking about Bruce getting sick. Remember, they are engaged now, people. Babs runs into, well... That's kind of weird, actually, because why is she there when they're actually in the desert and Batman? Babs runs into Lois outside the hospital, which is now locked down, and suddenly the wall arrives. Yes, Amanda Waller. And Amanda lets the media know that Gotham is under an official quarantine. Nobody screws the wall! Babs has a light bulb and believes that Ivy is to blame from the epidemic, and the birds go to confront her, but Ivy denies it and joins the team. Later, atop a rooftop, the full team looks over the city and prepares to fight for Gotham, when Batwoman, Spoiler, Orphan, and Gotham Girl arrive. Gotham Girl, if you are not aware, uh, is in the Batman, was in the Batman title, the first arc with Tom King, who is, this is, wait, what was it? I am. I am Gotham, I think it was. So if you need a refresher on that, Orphan, a.k.a. Cassandra Kane, if you're not up to snuff on that. After some posturing, they begrudgingly join the fight, and after a secret handshake, Wonder Woman also shows up. Next, Maelstrom, but the male is M-A-L-E, and then Strom. 
So at first, I wasn't a big fan of the art. But as I reread and examined the details, I started to become one. There are a few panels that I don't like how the women are drawn or even Professor Pig, but there are other moments where Antonio uses background and foreground really well. And the coloring involves the little dots, you know, that make it look vintage or textured. You can sort of see those at, at times. If you think about this, a lot of nothing happened in this particular issue. We just see a bunch of sick people, the birds put it all together, that the sickness only attacks men. However, I thought that it was really well paced and I really enjoyed this issue, even if it is just major setup. I liked seeing more Babs and Jim, which is always good. I can never get enough of the father-daughter relationship. And I think I also really like this issue because I am a big fan of Why the Last Man, which is mature readers, but I really recommend that series. It has a similar conceit, just that men, in this case, are all dead, and uh, there's only one with his little monkey, and those are the last two people. But great little story there. I also like the fact that we have an expanded Birds of Prey. I like adding Ivy, Catwoman, and Harley. Feels a little bit like New 52. Also, it feels like the past, right, with Catwoman there. But I almost felt like Batwoman, Orphan, Swower, and Gotham Girl was too much, especially since it created unnecessary, though understandable, conflict. And only Swower would have any relationship with this particular team as she popped up in Batgirl. And I think with the Burnside run, it was sort of hinted at or we thought that she was going to be in Birds of Prey. Wonder Woman's a nice addition at the end, and I'm also hoping that Lois joins, perhaps in another capacity, and it really will be just like old times. I look forward to seeing how the wall adds to the story and if there is conflict between her and the team. And of course, the big question is, what is this epidemic? Who is causing it? Who is the big bad? Who has this sort of power? to do this. Hmm. It kind of reminds me of uh, Contagion, right? Oh my goodness. What if it's Talia Al Ghul? <sighs> I don't know if she would do that. Get rid of all the men. Who would get rid of all the men? It'd be an Amazon, potentially. An Amazon that's not friends with Wonder Woman. I have to think. There's one that's on the tip of my tongue, and I cannot remember her name. I feel like I read something with her, too recently. Okay, my guess, just from this particular issue, which is the first one and perhaps too soon, is that it's either an Amazon that has uh, gone rogue, which I know that there's one or two of those, and there's one that I just can't remember her name, or it's Circe, Circe the Witch. So I think that it is in Wonder Woman's rogues gallery, though. I think that that's where I'm going. So we'll see. As a final thought, I must bring up continuity because Ivy and Harley are dating in Harley's book. And in this book, Harley is getting medication for the Joker. A little confused about that. Also, one can presume that Huntress and Dick are dating here since she called him and Babs did not call him. So at least this book is in line with Nightwing. So, I actually really liked this issue just because sort of the setup and I, you know, I know, I think it was just because I'm like, what is this? All the men are gone. What's going on? This is super exciting. So, I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. I'm going to give it nine out of ten birds. Okay. Now on to Batgirl 68 slash 16, Summer of Lies Part 3. I thought it was going to be the finale, but it is not. I think next issue is going to be the finale. Writer Hope Larson, pencils Chris Wildgoose, inks Jose Marzan, 
Jr. and Andy Owens, and colorist Matt Lopez. Years ago, the creepy group of men who were at Chive Garden are back at their headquarters suffering from some IBS. Yes, that is irritable bowel syndrome, or just getting the runs, and shooting darts at a picture of Ainsley when Batgirl and Robin pop in. After a really short fight, they talk to the group and clear up some wrong ideas. The men were just at Chive Garden to eat, not for Ainsley. One of the members actually dated Ainsley for a time, and Ainsley actually used the whole group. She was going through something, and they decided to add her to their hacker team, but she ended up stealing things from them, and now she is mixing with some bad people like Mad Hatter. A new drug called EMJ, techno drug, which is all the rage, is made from nanotechnology and can be customized and linked to an annoying song emoji, which starts the trip. Batgirl and Robin leave after they gather all their intel and race off. Batgirl is beating herself up that she was working for Ainsley and potentially helping with this techno drug. And while she's willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, Robin tells her that she could confront Ainsley and get her side. Speaking of Ainsley, Robin sees her walking into a building, and the two use a new bat mic to listen in on what turns out to be a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. We find out that Ainsley was an addict, and her sister ratted her out to her parents, who sent her to a rehab center. Ainsley was at the time going to MIT, but that fell through there. Afterwards, she was working for a dealer who paid in drugs, but now she wants to be clean for real. That girl feels dirty listening in, but Robin tells her it's okay and comforts her with a kiss. Later, the two are chatting, and Batgirl wants to get Ainsley free from the Mad Hatter, while Robin is a little hesitant because Mad Hatter is dangerous. There's that idea again. Batgirl bristles at this and asks if he's going to call Batman, but Robin says no, and they go off together and take down the Hatter. Now, well, we don't know if they've taken them down, but they've gone off there. That's where the scene ends, or the issue. Now, in the present day, Babs and Nick go to Seaboard Recovery, the rehab center that Ainsley attended in the past, in order to get some more information. Once there, they walk into more Red Knights going crazy, this time the rehab staff. Batgirl and Nightwing fight them off, and then Batgirl runs to hook her iPod into the PA system and play the emoji song, which shuts the knights down. Batgirl and Nightwing lock them up and go to look through the files and find that Ainsley died of a drug overdose on the streets in L.A. They suddenly connect the dots that the Red Queen is Ainsley's sister, Edith, who is also one of the staff that attacked them. It's time to confront the Red Queen and put it all behind them. But first, will Dick come home with Barbara? Next, Chuckmate. Well, I first have to say, boy, were there a lot of poop jokes in the beginning. Because they got sick from the chive garden, and then there's the smelling jokes, and then someone else, uh, I think they said the S word, but it was in, you know, the little characters, because you can't say that in this book, and then Robin says something like, already? So, lots of poop jokes in the beginning, lots of poop jokes. Did you know, here's some Stella tidbits for you. The poop emoji is my favorite emoji on the phone. Ask anyone. I want to talk about the convenience of the men in the restaurant. So it seemed like they were there and something was hinky and something was up here. But actually, they were just there to eat. Not there for nefarious reasons. I don't know. Is that a little too convenient there? 
they just happened to be there, and then Ainsley happened to be a little weird around them, and then Barbara took notice, and then they went home. I mean, if they had never been there, this would never have happened, and they wouldn't have had the runs either. So, a little strange, a little convenient. I do wonder about this emoji song. Um, it starts the trip, as far as we can tell, in, in the explanation at the beginning of the issue, but then also it ends it, and I wonder if that makes sense, because it seems like, I don't know, are on and off switches usually the same? Because I think about hypnotism. Usually something that starts it is going to be different from something that ends it. So I do wonder about that. Question about Robin's costume. There is a little red arrow right above his wee-wee on the green pants. Was that always there throughout? I know that this is a redesign, but anyone notice this? And why is it there? It's a little distracting and weird. So let me know about that. Uh, we get more insight into Ainsley, her past, and her family, which is interesting because once I reread 14, Ainsley was saying that her sister was unhinged and a little off. And now we actually get it that uh, that certainly was not true because Ainsley was the one that was off. And I think Ainsley just has some bitter feelings towards her sister because, of course, she ratted her out. Or in this case, you know, she tried to help her. Just seemed that way. Had an intervention there. So... It's interesting just that we're, we're filling in the blanks with Ainsley and uh, perhaps making her more of a sympathetic character and getting to know her that, you know, on the surface, uh, people do things for different reasons. And once you find out, uh, things might become more clear why this is happening. But I think it's just a lesson to learn that looking at someone's actions, uh, you can't just judge why that person is doing that. You need to there might be reasons behind it. So I think we're certainly getting that with Ainsley. So Ainsley's dead and not the Red Queen. And Tom, are you upset about that? Uh, because you expected Ainsley to be the Red Queen? After that revelation, adding the fact that her sister was mentioned several times, I assumed it was Edith before that was revealed. And it's true. So this should be interesting. But I do wonder, is Edith trying to pass the blame? She's the one that set everything in motion with getting Ainsley kicked out of MIT. And I suppose we still have an issue left to see how Batgirl and Robin are implicated. But it seems like Edith might have some guilt. And so now she's trying to push it off on somebody else. I want to talk about the ethics that are brought up in here in this issue. Looking at files in the Seaboard Clinic. And then, of course, listening to the Narcotics Anonymous and Robin sort of makes the argument that, um, you know, desperate times comes from desperate measures or they're doing it for the right reason sort of situation. I think back to um, Batman gassing Batgirl in Batman Year One and then, you know, sending her out home. But, yeah, some things that they do s sort of seems a little hinky for me. And I do wonder, do superhero ethics, are they not necessarily the same as human ethics? Because, obviously policemen would have to have a warrant and i think even it's it's pretty tough there judge certainly has to ask to open up the files and listening into na who you know all those things would be for bolden uh, for for regular people like you or i and so me sorry and but here they're just sort of doing it and and Barbara Gordon is interesting cuz she's sort of playing the part of the humans and and um, regular people and then Robin's got his part to play as, I guess, a seasoned 
crime fighter. And so it's like, it's okay. But I don't know. Shouldn't the ethics and the ideas of mores and things be the same for regular people and superheroes? Should that sort of thing be allowed? So just something that bothered me a little bit. The kiss. So it happened here in real time. I'm sorry, in the past, and it's sort of been building up, which was nice that it wasn't at the beginning, and we had that nice little cute chipper, I think, issue in the previous one with the blushing and things like that. But just, uh, it was more of a comforting kiss. It came after this this N.A., and I just always wonder when these kisses happen, are they good times? And it's interesting because the comforting kiss happened in the present time also as a comforting kiss. And so just like what what is Hope Larson trying to say with this sort of thing or what can we imply about Batgirl and Robin that, you know, it's not, is that really romance, you know, comforting someone with a kiss, um, you know, mutual need, I don't know, or that's not really my idea of when a kiss should happen potentially. It makes me nervous. I, it th- makes me think about Tim and Cassie Sandsmark making out um, in mutual loss and mourning over Connell being killed, Connor. And yeah, so I mean, that's misplaced because your feelings are elsewhere. So I just, I wonder, because clearly that I think they have feelings for each other, but I don't know if that's the time to do it. I'm a little confused about the come home with me situation. Why is Dick Reason or is it uh, Robin coming home with her? Not sure. I don't know. Question mark. It's probably going to be some weird hijinks that we'll see. Here we go. Mad Hatter. Too dangerous. Calling in Batman. I think this still shows Batgirl's inexperience potentially and not being confident because she's certainly being passive aggressive about this. And I think it's similar to the interaction in the first issue of the arc in 14 where, you know, oh, Batman, why didn't he call me? But, you know, perhaps more polished and, and better written, I would say. But at least Robin went along with her finally this time. So I think uh, there's some trust there. He believes in her ability as if she might not completely. Uh, so I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 bats. Yes, I'm looking forward to see what the last issue has in store. I think we need to find out how Batgirl and Robin relate to Ainsley in this time. What happens with Mad Hatter? Uh, what happens with their relationship? I guess they go their separate ways, as is, you know, DC's want, and they always do this. And then in the present, why is Dick Grayson coming home with Barbara Gordon? What is their relationship? I mean, are they just going to split? Are you going to see, like, one page next to the other page, and you'll see them walking off separate from each other? Because, of course, you know, Dick Grayson is with Helena, even though we haven't been told that here. But who knows? So what is the status of the relationship after this arc? Would be good to know. So there you go. Now over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review. Ah, that's like finding a back issue you didn't know existed by your favorite creative team and, of course, being with family on Thanksgiving with your football team winning and peace of mind. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome to the Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. On a quick personal note, I was in a local play in October, and I want to thank Stella, Jerry, my partner on the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, and all the others who communicated their support. Thank you very much, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your feedback. It was a lot of fun, and I had a little post-show depression afterwards, I confess. The play ran for a couple of weekends, and when it's over and you do the set strike, the reality starts to sink in that the amazing experience you had has come to an end. But I had a good time with it. It's a lot of fun doing a show. 
So I switched things up when I last appeared on this podcast, and I gotten some favorable responses on the last segment, as I examined and reviewed Batman Adventures number 12, the comic book title based on the 90s Batman, the animated series TV show. I'd like to thank those who responded. Some conveyed that they wouldn't mind a look at this title overall, not just issues with Batgirl appearances. So, when this episode drops, I'm tempted to put a poll on Twitter and ask the listeners, what would you like? A look at this title overall, or would you prefer I just stick to the Batgirl appearances? Today, I'm going to review Batman Adventures number 18 and give a quick review on the 66 Batman animated movie released last month, Batman vs. Two-Face. Batman Adventures number 18 was cover dated March 1994 and had a cover price of $1.50. This was six issues after this version of the Barbara Gordon Batgirl initially appeared in this title, and this issue marks her second appearance. Our story is entitled Decision Day and was written by Kelly Puckett, pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Rich Burkett, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The striking cover was done by Mike Parabek. It depicts a side view of Robin and a crouch in the foreground. And in the background, Batgirl, in her gray costume, readying a batarang in a crouch in the opposite position. And they're both against a sharp, deep purple background. The opening page shows three sets of two side-by-side panels. On the left, we see Barbara packing her Batgirl costume in a suitcase, getting ready to go off to Gotham University. On the right, we see a brown-suited man readying a bomb and packing it in a suitcase. Smash cut to the next page where we see a smiling Barbara Gordon waiting outside for her father, Commissioner Gordon, just outside his office. Gordon informs her that he'll need another 15 minutes. Barbara spots the man leaving the suitcase with the bomb inside in the hallway. She picks it up and follows him outside to return it out on the street. The man is shocked that she followed him out, and then suddenly an occupant in a waiting car tells the man to get rid of it. It's going to blow. Barbara quickly acts and disposes the bomb in a nearby alley, shielding herself behind a dumpster. Later, Barbara eavesdrops in on a meeting in her father's office, and she hears that he doesn't want her to testify against the suspect if she can identify him, fearing for her safety. This move goes against the wishes of his superior, who wants an immediate arrest. Warning the commissioner that male oral candidate Bob Hewlett is readying someone by the name of Jeff Griffin to replace Jim Gordon as commissioner should Hewlett win. Looking through books of mugshots, Barbara does identify the suspect. His name is Teller, but she keeps the knowledge to herself. For her safety, Jim Gordon keeps Barbara sequestered in a room at police headquarters. And after he says goodnight to her, Barbara changes into Batgirl. Batgirl goes to a rooftop and stakes out the bomber's apartment. There, she is met by Robin, who informs her that his apartment is clean. And Batgirl contains a bit of of shock at Robin's ninja-like prowess. The two agree to team up, and at that moment, Teller leaves the building, but there is also a mugging in progress in the alley below. Robin takes care of the muggers, and with little time to react, Batgirl manages to lob a bat tracker onto Teller's car. Our young heroes then track Teller to a room where Teller made the bomb and Batgirl takes pictures of the evidence. But no sooner do our heroes leave with a bound teller in tow. The GCPD show up with Jeff Griffin leading the way, and mayoral candidate Bob Hewlett arriving for publicity, and the local media present including Summer Gleason. Barbara thinks this was a bit too convenient, and Robin concurs. Indeed, we next see a bribed guard releasing Teller, who quickly gets into a car and is given a million dollars and a plane ticket to Asia. Robin leaps on the car, windshield, and he causes the vehicle to crash. 
Robin takes out the occupants, but Teller manages to run to the site of a Hewlett rally. Hewlett and Griffin give Teller cash and tell him to catch his plane, a moment captured on camera by Batgirl. A Hewlett worker spots her, and she manages to weave her way out of the building (laughs) with men running into each other and one being bowled over by Batgirl herself. With the evidence turned over to the police, the case is over. Robin agrees that the two of them together make a good team. He says, if she'd like to work with him again, he would welcome it. Batgirl agrees they do make a good team, but she says she has other stuff going on, referring to the university. And she she wishes working on cases wasn't the only way they could get together and see each other. And Robin agrees. We next see Commissioner Gordon dropping off Barbara at Gotham University. And as Barbara looks at a campus map while walking past the corner of a building, she bumps into Dick Grayson. As they bend down to pick up each other's things, Barbara says, I realize you're used to being driven, Grayson, but if you'd watch where you were walking... To which Dick replies, smiling, Oh, another zinger from Gordon fails to hit the mark. The end. Okay, the issue had a crooked politician as a villain, not anyone from the costume rogues gallery. If the thread in the story seemed lacking, it made up with for the artwork and the charm and the chemistry that Batgirl and Robin had in the story. Robin accepts Batgirl as a worthy partner right out of the gate. While Batgirl admits to herself she hasn't had the years of training that Robin's had. The issue was a fast read, not too much in dialogue or narrative, and the ending of the case seemed quite rushed. But the artwork helped move the story along. The panels of Batgirl hurrying to plant the tracking device on Teller's car, and the panels depicting Robin leaping and pounding a car windshield were very striking. Barbara's smile and Batgirl's facial expressions are just really expressive and well depicted. In this universe, apparently Batgirl and Robin are close in age. We're not sure who's older, but it's definitely closer than The Gap, which was, what, age 18 for Robin and age 25 for Batgirl in the 70 stories in Batman Family? It's quite refreshing to see these two characters work together. It would have been great to see more of these adventures. While I would have enjoyed seeing these two taking on a costumed villain, this was still a threat of sorts, and stories in this or any Batman verse shouldn't just be limited to costume villains, I guess. I was on the fence between a 7.5 and, and an 8 on this, but overall, a decent story, elevated by some outstanding outwork. So I am going to give Batman Adventures number 18 8 out of 10 bats. Next up, the animated movie Batman vs. Two-Face, which was released on DVD and Blu-ray this past October 17th. For our main cast, we had Adam West as Batman and Bruce Wayne, West having recorded his lines prior to his death earlier this year, Burt Ward reprising his role as Robin and Dick Grayson, William Shatner as Harvey Dent and Two-Face, Julie Newmar as the Catwoman, and another former Catwoman, Lee Merriweather, nice to see her, or rather, listen to her, on board as Lucille Diamond. She played an attorney for the villains. The name, a nod to Shatner's take on the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, no doubt. My synopsis, I'm going to try to keep brief and keep to broad brushstrokes on the main story elements. I might leave out some details and minor plot points. However, that and my opinions afterward will likely contain spoilers. So if you haven't seen this yet and you intend to, you may want to jump off here and try to scroll ahead back to Stella's voice. And I'll catch you on the next show. Thanks. At a secret site, Hugo Strange and his assistant, Dr. Harleen Quinzel, ready a device called an evil extractor. Batman and Robin are present, as is District Attorney Harvey Dent. The device, 
and yeah, this is just something you'll have to go with, will be used on the villains Joker, Penguin, Riddler, Egghead, and Mr. Freeze. With the intent, the criminals will be reformed forever. As Quinzel activates the device, she gives the Joker a wink. The device overlords, overloads, and a containment vat of green goop, <laughs> again, don't ask for elaboration on how evil thoughts can be changed to green goop, this explodes and scars one side of Harvey's face. Harvey now becomes Two-Face as the opening credits roll. Smash cut to Two-Face having facial reconstructive surgery, which not only restores his appearance, but Harvey and his sanity as well. Time passes, and the villain King Tut strikes. He steals a biplane, and later he and his henchmen raid a party on a double-decker bus attended by millionaires and includes Alfred and Anne Harriet in place of Bruce Wayne. Batman and Robin arrive, and they manage to get the guests safely off the bus. A bat fight ensues. Our heroes overpower King Tut's henchmen, but they are overcome by asps with knockout venom. Our heroes awaken, and they find themselves each in a human-sized urn to be buried in the foundation of a new building called the Pyramid Towers. Our heroes escape with the use of concealed bat jets in the soles of their footwear, and they manage to capture King Tut. Okay, next up we have some blunt force trauma to the head jokes with Chief O'Hare and King Tut. Uh, this occurs intended to be a stab at a humor, but this bit ran a little long for my taste. Next we see Lucille Diamond defending King Tut in court, but Harvey Dent, as the district attorney, wins the case. When we next see Lucille, she pays the Catwoman a visit in prison. Catwoman's cat manages to scratch Lucille with a knockout drug. And when she revives... She finds herself in Catwoman's cell and wearing her Catwoman's costume. And that Catwoman is now wearing her clothes, and she's in disguise as Lucille, and she is able to escape. Lucille looks at herself in a mirror and thinks she doesn't look bad in a Catwoman costume, which allows Meriwether to say, perfect, to perfection. Back to our heroes. Commissioner Gordon gives them a clue, which leads them to the Gotham City Library and a bookworm caper where they are able to capture the villain. However, the common thread of the past two clues, Dubber Deck or Bus, Pairs, Duality, etc., leads them to think that Two-Face could possibly be at large. Harvey is seemingly fine to Batman's satisfaction, but Robin is not so sure, leaving him to investigate Solo. Robin follows Harvey to a laboratory, but Robin is knocked unconscious from a blow from the back of the head from behind. Robin comes to bound in a chair, and Hugo Strange and Two-Face expose him to a gas compound from the evil extractor, causing him to have half of his side turn green and have an er evil personality. Robin then wreaks havoc on Gotham. Batman manages to overpower Robin, and he takes Robin to the Batcave, and he's able to use a different gas to cure him. Our heroes then go after Two-Face and track him to a casino. And our story then borrows a bit from the Golden Age comic book story entitled Two-Face Strikes Again in Batman number 81 from 1954. Elements from the story, a giant pool table, drawn by Dick Spring, of course, and our heroes being captured and tied to a giant-sized coin to be flipped and likely land on giant spikes are implemented here in this movie story. The movie here, though, goes a bit further as Two-Face unmasks Batman, revealing him to be Bruce Wayne and Two-Face deducing that Robin is Dick Grayson. And we now see that Harvey and Two-Face's persona and appearance can either change at will or to whatever personality is more dominant or more convenient for the sake of the story. Two-Face then decides to put the look under Batman's cowl up for auction, 
to the Batman villains, and the villains come to the scene, including the aforementioned, as well as Shame the Cowboy and the Clock King. Catwoman thinks the honor should belong to her, as she is the queen of plunder, and she outbids them all. But the rest of the villains pull their funds together. Two-Face collects all the money, and he departs. Batman and Robin spring the coin and manage to have it land on its edge. Catwoman claws the heroes free and aids our heroes in a bat fight, where the remaining villains are captured. Two-Face, now in a biplane, exposes the Gotham populace to the evil gas. Our heroes pursue him, and eventually they are able to take down the plane. The The scene shifts to a factory, and with fires everywhere, Batman orders Robin to leave for his own safety. As the factory is blowing up, Batman and Two-Face fight. Batman manages to talk Two-Face into reverting into his Harvey persona, and he is then captured. Batman and Robin use the Batplane to spread the, well, cure gas, if you'll allow me the simple term, to cure Gotham City. In our epilogue, time has passed. At stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, a celebrity bachelor auction is taking place. The event is emceed by a cured Harvey Dent, who has no memory of Batman's identity. Presumably, it's only known to the repressed Two-Face persona. Bruce disappears, and the first bachelor up for auction is revealed to be Batman. And the first bidder is Catwoman, who is seated in the audience, and she winks to us. The end. (laughs) Applause, applause. Apparently, the Blu-ray edition has a bonus scene of Harley Quinn breaking the Joker out of jail. Whether this scene will lend itself to another sequel remains to be seen. Obviously, it will be hard to press on without Adam West as Batman, and from what I've read online, there are no plans for another movie in this vein at this time. Speaking of Adam West, I thought his vocal performance was slightly better here than in the Return of the Cape Crusaders film. Either that, or I am now more used to his voice with the occasional slight show of age. While I didn't have any doubts Shatner would do a good job, he more than exceeded my expectations. Great inflections here, and this was just an outstanding performance by him. It also didn't hurt that Harvey Dent looked like a young Shatner in this depiction either. There was an ongoing bit here with Dent being a closer friend in stature to Dick Grayson, as opposed to him and the relationship he had with Bruce Wayne. And while this internal conflict was okay, as it progressed it started to wear thin on me. Speaking of Dick Grayson, Burt Ward did another fine job here as Robin. Julie Newmar thankfully returned as Catwoman and delivered another solid outing. I really love that they included Lee Merriweather in this. She was great, and I'm glad they found a way for her character to get into a Catwoman costume and purr. (laughs) Along the lines of Frisky, Lynn Marie Stewart reprised her role of Anne Harriet, and I think they gave her part a bit more playfulness youth. I really didn't have an issue with any of the other character voices. I think 66 Batfan Wally Wingert was the best of the lot as the Riddler. I'm not sure how strong my quibbles are. The notion that Harvey Dent slash Two-Face's face can seemingly morph and change in appearance was initially confusing to me at first. I think the film really went out of its way to make Chief O'Hara an incompetent buffoon, more so than the 66 TV show did. A little of that went a long way for me here. The film is rated PG for, quote, action, some mild language, and suggestive content, unquote. I saw this once, and I re-watched some scenes. I don't think there was anything that would raise a red flag for me here, and I think this was suitable for kids of any age with comprehension. A nice touch was the seemingly overuse of labels and signage in Gotham City, which added to the humor. The side stories with King Tut and Bookworm were nice surprises in a movie entitled Batman vs. Two-Face. 
Didn't expect to see those two here. If you're a long-time listener to my segment, you know I like cliffhangers and death traps, and we had our share of those here. The screenplay was by Mike Jelenic and James Tucker. Rick Moranis directed this. Christopher Carter, Michael McCusatin, uh, Lolita Ramitas did the music. I hope I did the name pronunciations justice. I'm sure I butchered it. I apologize. All of those people did a fine job. I wish this wasn't or will be the last of these animated movies, but I am grateful for all the creative talent that got on board with this, especially the inclusion of Lee Merriweather and William Shatner. I am going to give Batman vs. Two-Face 9 out of 10 bats. I think even if you're a casual fan of the 66 Batman show, there is enough of the great performances here and a decent story to satisfy you. Okay, not all of the in-jokes landed for me. The face-morthing of Two-Face seemed odd, and I was compelled to give the green goopit a pet of a pass there. Listeners, be sure to check out Stella's Required Reading podcast that she co-hosts with Tom Panarese. Shout out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out the Warler Worlds, Trucker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at BTO and Bat Books. I like to tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, some old Batman comics, and sometimes I put out a Saturday morning salute where I tweet a pic of an old TV listing from a Saturday morning of yore, among other things. I hope you like it. I hope you give it a try if you're not already following. And the handle is B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. That's B-T-O as in Batgirl Oracle, and Bat Books as in Bat Books for Beginners. That's the other podcast I could be found on. I co-host it with my friend Jerry Green, and that's where we examine and review trade paperbacks of collected material with Batman or related characters. Listeners, if you can want to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast, you can go over to the TBU website. That's for the Batman Universe website. Consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. We'd sincerely appreciate it if you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website. Now, this is a website you really need to check out. It's got a lot of news, articles, awesome editorials, and a host of a fine family of podcasts. You can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. If any of you would like to contact me directly, you can do so by Twitter, or you can do so by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Again, bruce.wayne at gothamcity, one word, dot us. Thanks very much for your support. What crisis on campus will Batgirl and Robin face? How will the MacGuffin pistols come into play? Will Barbara and Dick start to date at Gotham University? Listeners, don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these interesting, intriguing, illustrious, improbable, inexplicable interrogatives will be answered next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. And now finally, some literature recommendations. First up is Rescuing Patty Hearst, Growing Up Sane and a Decade Gone Mad. Let me ask you this question. What do you think this would be about? Patty Hearst? I did too. It's not. It's kind of related, but I thought I was going to be reading a nonfiction book about Patty Hearst. It's still nonfiction, but I didn't get any insight into Patty Hearst, which I was interested in uh, learning more about her. So in 1975, one year after Patty Hearst and her captors robbed Hibernia National Bank, a second kidnapping took place far from the glare of the headlines. Virginia Holman's mother, sorry, that's the author. They could have gone, Virginia, yeah, this is, sorry, whoo, rescuing 
Patty Hearst, growing up saying that a decade got mad, is written by Virginia Holman. So there you go. Virginia Holman's mother, in the thrall of psychosis, spirited her two daughters to a cottage on the Virginia Peninsula, painted the windows black, and set up the house as a mash unit for a secret war, a war that never came. The family, captive to her mother's schizophrenia and a legal system that refused to intervene, remained there for more than three years. No harm was done, but it's just, it was interesting to hear uh, Virginia's experiences as well as you know the impact that it had on her as a child as well as an adult so i recommend that absolutely next the chilling adventures of sabrina volume one by roberto aguirre sacasa and robert hack on the eve of her 16th birthday the young sorceress sabrina spellman finds herself at a crossroads having to choose between an unearthly destiny and her mortal boyfriend harvey but a foe from her family's past has arrived in greendale madam or Madame Satan, and she has her own deadly agenda. I got this. It was on sale, and I think it was an Archie sale on Comixology, and I waited until the weekend before Halloween to read it. My goodness, this is not the TGIF with Melissa Hart, Sabrina. Uh, it's a little bit darker, a little bit a lot darker, uh, but it was it was really good, but just like, oh, prepare yourself, and uh, not for the faint of heart, for sure. I also read, in preparation for the film coming out, Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Just after midnight, the famous Orient Express is stopped in its tracks by a snowdrift. By morning, the millionaire Samuel Edward Ratchet lies dead in his compartment, stabbed a dozen times, his door locked from the inside. Without a shred of doubt, one of his fellow passengers is the murderer. Isolated by the storm, Detective Hercule Perot must find the killer among a dozen of the dead man's enemies before the murderer decides to strike again. Well-written, clever, I think, as all Agatha Christie's are, and I'm really looking forward to the film. I saw the original film. I guess it could be original. I think it was in the 70s, and but I'm looking forward to this one. Daisy Ridley Ray is in it. There are a lot of amazing people. And finally... This is what I want to talk about. Star Wars A New Dawn by John Jackson Miller. The first Star Wars novel created in collaboration with the Lucasfilm Story Group. Star Wars A New Dawn is set during the legendary dark times between episodes 3 and 4 and tells the story of how Kanan and Hera from the animated series Star Wars Rebels first came to cross paths. Okay, so... I've been watching Star Wars Rebels. I am a bit behind. I think initially when I saw it, I wasn't as hip to it. No, that's not the right phrasing. I wasn't as intrigued by it. And I think I had just gotten off of Clone Wars watching all of that. And I think that I was just disappointed that, I don't know, maybe not necessarily the look, but Ezra. I, it didn't seem like a compelling character. And, but now I was like, yes, I'm, I'm going to watch these. So I've been watching, I've seen the first two seasons now and waiting for the third one to come in from the library. And then I know fourth is airing. So I guess I'll be able to catch up maybe over Christmas or something. But I would say Ezra's probably my least favorite character. Hera is probably my favorite character. And then of course, Ahsoka, Ahsoka, which is amazing. So I found out, well, first of all, I should say that I got, I found out that there was a Phasma novel and because I really like Captain Phasma, even though you don't know anything about her, but she's very intriguing. And so I thought, yes, I'm going to read this Phasma novel. And then I'm doing Rebels and I'm looking up uh, information about Rebels. I think I was seeing maybe if there are any video games or something like that. And I saw that there was this novel, A New Dawn, and I wanted to see how Kanan and Hera met because I totally shipped those two. And 
it's uh, it's interesting because number one, I really like it. I'm nearly done. I have a hundred pages. Might knock it out tonight. Maybe not. But Star Wars novels are like a hole that you can fall into because I'm reading this. I've got Phasma on my shelf because I bought that. This one, uh, New Dawn is from the library. I then I found out that there's an Ahsoka novel that sort of bridges the gap between when she leaves the Jedi Order and I think you see her in Rebels. And so I got that from the library. So you can totally fall down a hole. Then I'm telling, Tom was talking to me about something that he was planning on doing with his, you know, his little reading, like a, a little plan. And he asked if I wanted in and I said that I was falling down a Star Wars hole. And then he said about Phasma, I'm like, oh, I have Phasma. And then he sends me a picture of like this trilogy that he's, you know, suggesting I read. So you don't realize, I mean, maybe if you're Star Wars people, but you can easily fall into this. And uh, I need to quickly get out of that hole because I think there are so many that you could potentially just like go on forever. So New Dawn, Arita Ahsoka, Phasma. I know that there's a Thrawn novel, but I haven't gotten to Thrawn yet in Rebels, so I don't really need to read that right now. But I think it's probably pretty easy to just uh, lose yourself in that. And I can't do that because I have other things that I need to read. So anyways, that's why I've been on a Rebels kick and reading some Star Wars stuff. And yeah, so that's why we've got a Star Wars sponsor this time. Oh my goodness. Okay. I think as of this recording, I have read in 2017, so starting from January, I have read a total of 104 books. And Tom and I, I don't know if I've ever read 100 books. And I think my goal is 80. So I've clearly surpassed that. But Tom and I are in a competition. And whoever has the most books read in 2017 will buy the other some, some nice, some vittles. So I'm hoping to beat this man and make him cry. But he stresses me out because he goes on all the time and then texts me and says something like, you're too ahead or I'm even with you. And I don't even check. I just read and then log it in and I've just been waiting. But anyways, that's what you know. I'm up to this stuff. (sighs) Okay. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful November, a wonderful Thanksgiving. What you might be asking, can you get me for, uh, what can you lavish me with gifts, what type of gifts? And well, I'll take money, of course. No, I'm just kidding. You know, the gift that keeps on giving is the fact that you guys write in and you listen. And I'm really appreciative of you. And I, I really mean that just coming from the heart because I think I enjoy doing this, but what would be the point if no one listened? So I appreciate you and thank you and keep listening and have a wonderful Thanksgiving and keep safe and absolutely love each other. And if you all want to go to the same tattoo parlor and all get the same tattoo, let me know. Date, place, let me know. You can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher if you're not up for the iTunes. Absolutely, those are two other options. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backroll.oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And please support the Batman Universe. And by doing that, you're supporting all other shows that are on there, including Backroll Oracle. And subscribe to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, which will be the anniversary 8th. I think it's the 8th anniversary, people. Woo! Getting up there, man. Getting up there. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon.
masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you, 